0: Welcome to Navarro Live, I'm Aaron Bastani. This evening I have the immense satisfaction of being joined by Barnaby Rain, aka The Rain Storm. Barnaby, how you do?
1: I am delighted to be with you, Aaron, and uh, just after International Workers' Day, which I celebrated in style by teaching my students all about socialism here at Columbia, New York, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm so glad to be with you to dig into some exciting news.
0: Well, we do have a big show tonight because, of course, we had a three-day weekend. There was no show yesterday because, of course, we are you might have guessed, a left-wing media organisation. So our staff have a day off on May Day. Uh, Later in the show, we'll be discussing yet more bumper profits for a British energy firm. Royal propaganda gets even more bizarre as the King's coronation approaches. And a few other stories too. Are you excited about the coronation next weekend? And did you see that polling from The Sun saying that Labour should be really scared? despite them polling a double-digit lead. Do you think that's the start of the newspaper's attacks on Labour as we get closer to an election? And is Rupert Murdoch truly shook? First story. Akir Starmer has announced he's backing away from yet another key Labour promise. After months of speculation, the Labour leader has finally confirmed that his 2020 pledge to scrap tuition fees has itself been scrapped. Here's a reminder of what Starmer said about fees during the 2020 leadership race. At the end of his social justice pledge, he said he supports the abolition of tuition fees and investment in lifelong learning. Now, Starm has appeared on Radio 4's Today
2: programme where he said this. We're looking at options, Justin, for. Um, how we uh, fund these fees. The, the, the current system is unfair. It doesn't really work for students, doesn't work for universities. We need a fairer uh, way of doing this and we're looking at a number of options. Obviously, we've got to do that against the economic background as it now is. And when we've come up with what we think is the fairest option,
3: we'll then obviously announce that. What the Times quotes a senior party source is saying, at a time when we're being so careful about spending commitments, it's a glaring anomaly that we still haven't moved on from June fees, in other words, that you are now going to abandon the pledge to abandon them—that is true, isn't it?
2: Well, uh, I think we are going to set out a fairer solution, and Justin, so you but, know, but,
3: but it won't be the it won't be the abandoning of tuition fees, will it?
2: Well, we are likely to move on from that um, commitment because right. we do find ourselves in a different financial situation. But I, I, I don't want that to be read as us accepting for a moment that the current system is fair or that it's yeah. working, because no, no, I do no, think I there are other ways of approaching You want to
3: come this. up with other things, but you're being quite clear. You are going to move on from that pledge. Isn't it extraordinary?
0: You've got two people there, Justin uh, Webb and Keir Starmer. Between them have paid zero, zero in student fees. If you bought a tea or coffee today, maybe at Pret, maybe at Gregg's, maybe you bought a pasty, you spent more buying that than those two gentlemen paid for university education, but apparently this is lost on them. At the moment, student fees in England are set at £9,250 per year and £9,000 for those in Wales. Scottish residents who are doing their first degree pay no fees if they attend Scottish universities. And in Northern Ireland, they capped at £4,360 a year for home students. Now, in 2019, the Institute for Fiscal Studies estimated that scrapping fees would cost the public purse just over £6 billion per university year group. And, according to Sky News, Labour sources say it would cost an additional £12 billion up front. Starmer's U-turn comes in the same week that Labour's elected student body voted to back a free education policy. Speaking on behalf of Labour students, Fabiha Askari said this. With our higher education system in crisis, young people saddled with high rent and massive students, this policy is more urgent than ever before. Tell Keir Starmer that. We urge Keir Starmer to listen to the voice of students, keep his word, and recommit the abolition of tuition fees. Anything less will be seen by young people as a massive betrayal of our futures and risks alienating labour from our party's own core vote. Joe Grady as General Secretary of the University and Colleges Union. She said this, Keir Starmer repeatedly pledged to abolish the toxic system of tuition fees and in so doing was elected leader of the Labour Party. It is deeply disappointing for him to now be reneging on that promise, a move which would condemn millions of future students to a life of debt. What we really need is a positive vision for higher education that puts staff and students first. The current tuition-fee-reliant model is broken. It has saddled students with decades of debt, turned universities from sites of learning into labyrinthine businesses obsessed with generating revenue and surpluses over all else, and led to staff pay and working conditions being degraded, causing unprecedented industrial unrest. The country desperately needs a publicly funded higher education system. Barnaby, you've got agreement there from Labour students. They're not known as the most left-wing people around. They may be on the Labour Party, but famously, Labour students are somewhat to the right. Uh, And you have the General Secretary of the relevant trade union that represents lecturers in universities. They're both saying the same thing. This is obvious. Let's get rid of tuition fees. Why is that allegedly obvious point lost on the Labour leader? Because he doesn't
1: have any critical sense of how the model of capitalism that we've had for the last 40 years has generated a series of crises and has to be challenged. One of the central features of the model of capitalism over the last 40 years is it's replaced high growth rates in the post-war period with ballooning debt as we mortgage ourselves against the future. People are in debt to credit card companies and banks. Uh, Governments are in debt. Private businesses are in debt. And people are in debt to when they try to buy a house and get a mortgage and they're in debt now when they try to get an education. If you leave university in Britain today with tens of thousands of pounds of debt, uh, move in with another graduate and try to buy a house together, you're starting your working life with hundreds of thousands of pounds of debt. Of course, most people can't even buy a house at that point. You've got hundreds of thousands of pounds of debt and then you face an employer. Um, uh, as an indebted, uh, an indebted worker who's easier to push around. So we have a class of people, young people, uh, facing huge debts, which mean that their ability to make choices about their future, certainly to stand up to an abusive boss at work, um, are crippled by uh, that vulnerability, that precarity. And in the meantime, the state is very active, subsidising things that it wants to. So most young people can't afford to get mortgages. We pay high rents, and we pay high rents to landlords, many of whom are subsidised by the state. Um, we get low pay from employers, many of whom are subsidized for that low pay by the state. So the state is active in subsidizing landlords and bosses, but it can't subsidize young people to get an education. Um, That means that Britain's world-class university education system one of its few kind of world leading industries um, is uh, is crippled by bad managers uh, cutting pay for university staff so that they have to go on strike repeatedly in order to desperately try to save the sector so that it can recruit good people um, while uh, lots of jobs require people to get a university education and. Um, people are now put off getting an education um, or saddled with so much debt doing it that their ability to make choices about what they want to do afterwards are limited. Governing people by debt is a really effective way of controlling them. Go to any law school here in America and you'll you'll, you'll hear people starting law school saying that they want to have great careers, helping the poor and vulnerable. And then they leave law school and end up working for corporate firms. Why? Because they've got such enormous debt at the end of it that they need to find some way to support themselves. So we're all indebted. It limits the kinds of choices we can make. um, And it causes enormous Amounts of stress and anxiety in people's lives. And the state could be subsidizing a way out of that, but instead it chooses to subsidize big businesses, bosses, and, and, and multimillionaire landlords. And Starmer just has no fundamental criticism of that model of capitalism.
0: Yeah, to just get into the details here. I mean, this is really extraordinary. And we should look at student debt as a as a tax. Um, the margin rate of tax for somebody who's earning around 26500 pounds a year which is a little bit below the average wage, but it's more or less there. The marginal rate of tax for somebody who's a graduate after £26,000 is 41 or 42%. If you include their student debt repayments and national insurance contributions, 41 42%. That is higher than the marginal rate of tax for somebody who's earning £90,000 or £100,000, but who doesn't have student debt. Somebody like you know, Keir Starmer, of course, he earns a lot more than that in, in law. But uh, as the leader of the opposition, that'd be ballpark what he's earning. Of course, after 120, 125000 there's an even higher rate of tax. But 41%, the marginal rate of tax for somebody earning £26,000 a year, nurses, doctors, computer scientists, absolutely extraordinary. And what I'll never understand is that you have conservatives and people on the right saying, we can't have tax too high, people will leave the country. What, what, what do you think this is? If you're paying somebody to train as a doctor, as a nurse, as a computer scientist, as anything, frankly, a teacher, whatever, and they've got this massive debt, this massive margin rate of tax, and they can leave the country where, by the way, if they go to Australia or Canada or the Gulf or somewhere in Asia, housing's cheaper, quality of life is better, what do you think they're going to do? It's no coincidence that one in three junior doctors are looking to leave the country. And clearly, a giant debt hanging around your neck is a part of that. Anyway, you would think most people would find that quite a a sensible argument to scrap fees, or at least do something really serious about them, but apparently not if you're Keir Starmer. Next story. Starmer's abandoning of his tuition fees pledge is the latest addition where he's gone back on his word and made himself look thoroughly untrustworthy in the process. His excuse for dropping the promise to abolish tuition fees was that the economic circumstances have changed, That's the same excuse that Sturmer rolled out when he dropped another key pledge, which was to take key British industries into public ownership. This is what he promised during his leadership bid. Pledge five, because of course there were so many. Common ownership. Public services should be in public hands, not making profits for shareholders. Support common ownership of rail, mail, energy and water, and outsourcing in our NHS, local government and justice system. And this is what he said when he appeared on Good Morning Britain in July last year. In
3: the leadership election, February 2020, you said you support common ownership of rail, mail, energy and water. Rail, you are still planning to nationalise. Energy and water, you are taking a pragmatic approach. Does that mean that you are planning to nationalise them or not? We're
2: taking a pragmatic approach. So. Yeah, what we're saying is, look, the market is not functioning properly. I think there's a business right. select committee out this morning that absolutely reinforces that. And people will feel that um, with the bills that they're receiving yeah. um, that are you know, far too high in many respects. So they know the market isn't working. So something's got to be done. So I'm not in a position yeah. of saying we're going to leave things as they are. But we've got to recognize that after COVID, well, after COVID, we've got to be very careful about... Um, what we're able to spend going into an election. And I don't want a Labour Party that, you know, as it was in 2019, was basically saying we can spend on anything. Um, We've reversed those 2019 manifesto positions because we needed um, to, to show the country that we're credible, we're responsible on the economy, so we'll be pragmatic about it. But within the fiscal rules, within the amount of money that we've got, we've got to make choices. Um, And if I've got choices to make, um, and there are other ways of fixing the market, then I'm a pragmatist and we will go for the other ways of fixing the market.
0: Well, back in 2020, Starmer wasn't so pragmatic because he promised that those pledges were set in stone no matter what hit the economy. Over the next couple of years, here he is talking to Andrew Neil
4: on the BBC. You made 10 policy pledges for this campaign. Let's see how watertight they are. Can you guarantee that under your leadership, the 2019 Labour commitments to nationalise water, energy, rail, the Royal Mail, they'll all be in Labour's next election manifesto? I've made that commitment. Um,
2: The pledges I've made indicate the direction of travel, but I am well aware that there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done between now and 2024 because that 2024 manifesto has to reflect mm-hmm. the state of the nation in
4: 2024 right. and face the late 2024. 20- and things 20- change 20- i understand. Well, understand a lot that. of things will change i don't want you i'm not consider the, 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 asking the, 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 you to write the manifesto but those four industries will be in the labor manifesto for nationalization come 2024
2: they will. They're baseline um, indicators of where we're going. I think that we'll need oh, to think about how indicator. we do it. Well, they will be. They they are. What I'm saying to the members here is we need to build the case from where we are now to 2024. Lots of things are going to change between now and 2024. It's not unlikely that we'll be leaving the EU without a deal. We don't know what the state of the economy oh. will be. Manufacturing could well make Take a hit. So we're going to have to craft that 2024 manifesto. Looking forward, my pledges are an indication to our members as to what I think is important, the direction of travel, and what we will K- build Kistammer,
4: on. Mr. a pledge is not an indication. A pledge is a word. Is your word? It's a pledge. I'm not disputing that. I don't have any problem. So with is that. it a pledge that these industries will be in your manifesto for nationalisation? Yes, it is. The point I'm making to you is the manifesto will have to have a lot more than that. Oh, of course, this I understand that. not a manifesto. That. Well, what this about university tuition, tuition fees then? Will you remain committed to scrapping them in They're your first term? They're
2: all pledges, Andrew. So the answer to these questions is
4: yes. So university tuition fees being scrapped will be in a Starmer manifesto? Yes, that's why in it's a pledge. the next election. Okay.
0: If that was a Conservative Party politician, if that was Boris Johnson, the BBC, the Guardian, would be frothing at the mouth? But in broadcast media, as I've said very frequently, the default is New Labour politics, which is why he's generally had a very easy ride on this stuff. Andrew Neil, whatever misgivings I have about the man, and I have many, he's the chairman of The Spectator. He's very clearly on the right. I don't think he adheres to impartiality in any way, shape or form while he was at the BBC, but he's clearly a very good interviewer and he tries to find logical inconsistencies and incoherence in the broader argument. He did it there. Most people don't when Keir Starmer appears on broadcast because they... They agree with him. They like him. They don't want to see tuition fees scrapped. Bloody hell, 90% of them never paid a penny in tuition fees. Why do they care? Now, also part of that 2020 public ownership pledge was a promise to, quote, end outsourcing in the NHS. Speaking to Sky's Sophie Ridge, this was Starmer in January of this year.
2: I want to have a look at one of your 10 pledges during your leadership yeah. campaign to become uh, uh, the lead of the Labour Party. Uh, and you said uh, this in it. You said... Public services should be in public hands. Here we go. Uh, public services should be in public hands, not making profits for shareholders, and this is the key bit. End outsourcing in our NHS. So why have you changed your mind? Well, um, we're not talking about privatising the NHS but we'll about or any public. Well, the NHS has always used. Um, elements from the private sector. GPs, for an example, is an but, example but, but your of pledge, that. you said end outsourcing and NHS, you've changed your mind. Yeah, well, look, the outsourcing of some issues and functions I don't think has been very effective. But if you take the NHS, the NHS has always used uh, GPs in private practice. That's always been part of it. For many, many years, the NHS has referred NHS... Um, you know, patients to the private sector to have operations, hip operations, knee operations, etc. I think we could be more effective at that. But I'm not talking about privatising the NHS.
0: The pledge is literally on the screen, it's literally, It's literally there in giant letters next to you. He's lying about lying. But again, apparently not a big deal. Not a big deal because he has a nice haircut. So how has Starmer fared against the other promises he made in 2020? This was his top pledge back then. We've got one economic justice, like I say. There were so many. Big list. Increase increase income tax for the top 5% of earners, reverse the Tories' cuts in corporation tax, and clamp down on tax avoidance, particularly of large corporations. No stepping back from our core principles. Hmm, interesting. Because on the Today programme, Starmer appears to have decided it's more important to appease the
3: rich than pursue economic justice. Number one, why not stick to that pledge to increase uh, income tax for the top 5% of earners, who I, th- I think you were suggesting could afford it? But also, why not uh, reform capital gains tax so that it's the same rate as as top rate taxpayers currently pay on income? Well, Justin,
2: we've got the highest um, sort of tax Burden for well since the Second World War and therefore, incre- I mean, what we've had from the government is tax rise upon tax rise upon tax rise. And if they've proved one thing, it's that their high tax, low growth economy doesn't work. So, but for does me, taxing just, wealthier just, people just, not work? Just, so, so just, just
3: on this on this point, because I mean, it's been something that Labour governments or Labour uh, um, Party recently has been very committed to. I'm just yeah. wondering the extent to which you now accept if you do, that taxing higher paid people and wealthier people more doesn't work? Yeah, Justin, let me
2: just complete that mm. point and I'll, I'll try and incorporate it into the question you've just asked me. Um, I, I think you know what we've seen over the last 13 years is... An economy that hasn't worked it hasn't grown um, at any reasonable rate that that's the net cause of the cost of living crisis net reason why people's wages haven't gone up cost of li- why their living standards haven't gone up we've had you know people will be asking themselves after 13 years am I any better off and the answer to that is no now the question you then put to me well wouldn't it be therefore sensible to raise taxes even higher I think the high tax low growth model it uh, doesn't work. I think it's busted. I think this government has busted the economy. So it's not but, quite but, second, but, Keir, the, but, the question I'm asking.
3: Hang on a second, The question I'm asking is whether people who have actually done pretty well uh, in recent times with the rise in asset prices, et cetera, and actually are wealthy in our society, should be paying more than they currently pay. And I think you're saying pretty clearly no.
2: Well, Justin, that's because um, the my answer on what we do about the economy is we've got to grow the economy. And so I I accept, Justin, I'm giving you a different answer to perhaps um, previous Labour leaders, which Mm. would always go straight to tax and spend. I'm saying my central focus is on growing our economy.
0: That seemed like a pretty long-winded way of saying, I believe in trickle-down economics, apparently putting Keir Starmer in the Liz Truss school of non-thought. Let's go back to that social justice pledge because it involved more than just student fees. It also promised to, quote, abolish universal credit and end the Tories' cruel sanctions regime. That pledge is now off the table too. Because speaking to the Centre for Social Justice in January, Shadow Work and Pensions Minister John Ashworth said this. We actually agree with the concept behind universal credit which was to bring six different benefits together into a unified system of support. That is the right thing to have done. And on what Labour would do about benefit sanctions, he said this. I want to be clear. There will be a conditionality regime within the benefit system. William Beveridge was clear in his white paper 80 years ago that people who did not engage sufficiently with trying to find work, that would lead to consequences. It should not be surprising that there will be conditionality, there will be rights and responsibilities running through the heart of social security. They love to talk about rights and responsibilities. John Ashworth was caught slagging off his own political party, talking to a mate, literally days for a general election. were Were the responsibilities there? They weren't there. They like to talk about responsibilities as long as they're for other people. One pledge that mattered to a lot of people in 2020, particularly those who did support Keir Starmer, who's seen as this arch Remainer, involved freedom of movement after Brexit. As part of his pledge to defend migrants' rights, Starmer promised to, quote, defend free movement as we leave the EU. But now he's changed his tune again. Here's what he said during that Radio 4 interview.
2: I mean, there were very important pledges I made, um, the vast majority mm. of which stand. But some of well, them, you know, some of them, are, one of them was, for example, was free, uh, defend free movement as we leave the EU. Well, we have left the EU, we're in a different situation, so uh, that's clear.
0: Defend free movement as we leave the EU just doesn't mean the same as defend it until we leave the EU. And in January 2020, he even doubled down and said Labour should argue for the return of free movement. Those are the pledges that Starmer has explicitly broken, but there are others that his recent actions don't really seem aligned with. He promised to promote peace and human rights, but just months after winning the leadership, Starmer whipped Labour to vote in favour of the Tories' Overseas Operations Bill. The bill, which has since been passed into law, makes British soldiers immune from prosecution for historic crimes, including human rights abuses, committed while serving abroad. Now, 17 members of the socialist campaign group of Labour MPs defied the whip. Nadia Whitton, Beth Winter and Olivia Blake were fired from junior ministerial roles as a result. More recently, Starmer allegedly threatened to suspend 11 MPs who signed a stop the War coalition statement, urging a less confrontational stance by the UK government. They all subsequently withdrew their signatures. So, to recap... The promise to abolish tuition fees. Gone. Public ownership of utilities. Gone. Ending NHS outsourcing. Gone. Abolishing universal credit. Gone. Defending free movement. Gone. Increasing income tax on the top 5%.
2: Economic credibility. Gone.
1: Barnaby. Stammer
0: comes across as a very slippery character, doesn't
1: he? He is the Tucker Carlson of British politics, Aaron. He says one thing to his party audience, and he doesn't mean a word of it. You know, we recently discovered that Fox News hosts treat their audience with a kind of contempt where they'll tell them loudly on air that Trump really won an election, and then they'll go behind the scenes and say to their friends that they know it's all rubbish. That's exactly how Keir Starmer approached the Labour Party. His staff have recently wanted to present him as a figure of some uh, uh, aggression and, um, and fight and verve. Um, they know that he comes across as a kind of bland bank manager, and they want to suggest instead that he's someone who's got a fighting spirit in him. They planted a story in an interview that when he plays football, he shouts at other people on his football team because he really cares about winning. But their only strategy for showing that he has aggression is to show that he can beat up on his own party members, his own supporters, that he can attack the core constituency uh, that the Labour Party always relies on, whether it's young people who face a future indebted and they're going to get no help from the Labour Party, whether it's um, migrants and people from communities of migration um, who will see uh, an increasingly inhumane Conservative government. Uh, responded to by the Labour Party only by calling it inefficient and not by challenging uh, a drive to the far right uh, in migration policies unimaginable a few years ago. Um, Whether it's public sector workers whose uh, push for for decent pay and in order to save the public services they work for won't be supported by the Labour Party. Every different sector of the coalition on which the Labour Party relies, Starmer wants to attack in the name of trying to show that he's different uh, from Jeremy Corbyn. The problem is, of course, that... um, It's very easy to beat up on students and on uh, members of ethnic minorities and on public sector workers and on people on universal credit who can't afford to heat their homes while energy companies rake in massive profits. It's easy to beat up on those people. It's a bit harder to confront the people that you need to confront if you want to change the way that British society works so that it works for more of us, for the many, you might say, and not just the few. It's easier to beat up on the poorest and most vulnerable than it is to confront the real challenges that we face. And in fact, a zealous commitment to beating up on the poorest and the most vulnerable can rule out the ability to actually tackle the challenges we face. We're in the laughable situation now that Emmanuel Macron, the embattled president of France, uh, so committed to neoliberal dogma that he's willing to push through legislation without parliamentary approval, um, is able to nationalise to have a nationalized energy company and so cut bills for French people, a committed Thatcherite, and Keir Starmer won't go near the idea of a nationalized energy company to cut people's bills while People in Britain shiver and freeze. Why? Because that's an idea associated with the left. So, the the Starmer strategy of seeming like a tough guy by beating up on those who it's easy to beat up on just makes him look like a pathetic kind of schoolyard bully um, who gets his tail between his legs whenever a big dog comes over and hands over his lunch money immediately to energy bosses, landlords, um, and and, and corporate billionaires while attacking uh, the smallest kids in the playground. That's here Starmer's model of politics. There's something else going on here, I think, that we should be aware of. Um, I said Keir Starmer's the uh, Tucker Carlson of British politics. He's also the George Osborne of Labour Party politics. So he announces big changes in his plans, and he says we're forced into this because of an economic Uh, condition. COVID transformed the economic weather. And so we just have to change everything we want to do. That's exactly what George Osborne did in relation to the banking crash. The Tories had promised to to match Labour's level of investment in public services in order to seem like a a reasonable modern party. And then they seized a crash caused on Wall Street and in the city of London and used it uh, as thin justification for the kind of shrinking of the welfare state, shrinking of the social wage that they'd always been about always wanted to do starmer is here taking a leaf right out of the tory playbook you take an economic crisis in which there is a desperate need we've literally known this since the 1930s a desperate need in the face of economic crisis to invest in jobs And skills and opportunities just for the reproduction of capital let alone any more ambitious aspirations and in that moment of economic crisis instead you reproduce the most right-wing dogma which says like a household that a government must cut back its budget in the middle of a crisis and you use that dogma to push forward an agenda which you always had anyway there's a kind of contempt for basic truth here. There's absolutely no reason that COVID means that British soldiers should be able to torture people with impunity. And yet Starmer announces that he wants to push Labour MPs to ensure British soldiers can torture people with impunity. There's absolutely no reason that a worldwide pandemic means that we shouldn't criticise NATO, whose violence has uh, has degraded and ruined tranches of our planet. But Starmer now announces that he'll discipline Labour MPs for criticising NATO. Every single one of his U-turns has in common, not that it's caused by changing economic circumstances, that's just the right-wing excuse. Every single one of his U-turns has in common that it fits with Keir Starmer's politics which is to be a cop, to be a servant of the British state and its violence and so not to uh, care about freeing people all over the world and here in Britain from the forms of violence and degradation and humiliation that are meted out to us, whether it's by the police or by oil companies or by uh, rogue landlords. Uh, Instead, Starmer sides with those forces of power and wants only stability and criticizes the Conservative Party only for its chaos and not for presiding over a system which is rigged uh, to benefit only a few and not most of us.
0: I think it's really important to say as well that Starmer becoming Labour leader, and the, the, the way that happened, and the way that this entire deception has happened, I mean, it clearly was a massive deception, was such a failure of the media. Because there were so few people actually inquiring, well, he's saying these things, does he mean them? Is he going to back it up? What's his track record? He's presenting himself as this crusading human rights lawyer, friend of the Labour movement. Is that really who he is? You know, there were very few media outlets talking about that. And Media was one of them. I, I remember writing several articles saying, well, he, he voted for Owen Smith in the 2016 leadership election. He participated in the chicken coup. He um, has employed a bunch of people from, from Owen Smith's campaign, many of them on the party right. Does this tell us something? I mean, it's interesting, right? And yet there was not a single story like that from The Guardian or from the BBC or I think, to the best of my recollection, the New Statesman. And when I published those stories, you had people out there in the media, people like Paul Mason saying, this is propaganda, this is the Corbynites attacking Keir Starmer. No, we were trying to scrutinise a politician seeking a high office. That's what you're meant to do as a journalist. Apparently not if you're The Guardian, the BBC, or uh, Paul Mason. Next story. Energy giant BP has made $5 billion or £4 billion in profits in the first quarter of 2023. It's just the latest in a series of eye-watering quarterly results for the oil and gas producer. This chart from the BBC shows how BP's profits have soared since the war in Ukraine began last year, reaching record highs in the second and third quarters of last year. Its total profit for 2022 was a whopping $28 billion, more than double what it banked in 2021. The latest results have led Labour to renew its calls for a larger windfall tax on the firm. Shadow Climate Change Secretary Ed Miliband posted this on social media. These enormous profits are the unearned windfalls of war, and every excess pound that the energy giants rake in is at the expense of British families. Labour would be doing the fair thing and bring in a proper windfall tax on oil and gas giants to help freeze council tax this year. Labor estimates that the energy giants like BP Shell and Centrica have already made £7 billion in profits so far this year from North Sea operations alone. That amounts to about £60 million a day. When he was Chancellor, Rishi Sunak introduced a 25% windfall tax on the energy companies. Jeremy Hunt has more recently increased it to 35%, that was in January, and it's intended to run until March 2028. But that tax, to be clear, only applies to profits made from the actual extraction of UK oil and gas in the North Sea. Other profit-making activities like refining oil and retail sales of fuel are exempt. And the energy giants can also claim tax relief worth 91 pence for every pound invested in UK fossil fuel
1: extraction. Extraordinary. Barnaby, is this an issue where Labour are actually talking some sense? Well, I think Ed Miliband is to some degree. I mean, he's the last holdout in Starmer's shadow cabinet of uh, of that wing of the party, which isn't the extreme right. Uh, and I'm sure Starmer and his top people are not happy uh, really with having Ed Miliband there. We've known this was coming for a while. You know, BP in January forecast eightfold increases in their profits um, uh, for this year. And that, that hasn't been tackled. We have a windfall tax, which... Um, Uh, which allows companies to make back uh, uh, a huge amount of the money that they're supposedly being taxed. So we've got companies forecasting enormous profits, then getting those enormous profits, then paying tens of billions out to their shareholders. And the state sits back and does very little. They refused to impose a windfall tax for a long time. When they did impose one, they ensured there were so many loopholes that companies barely had to pay. Why does that happen? Why do we get policy made in the interests of corporate profit while people can barely afford to heat their homes? Well, the answer is just too obvious. It's too on the nose. Liz Truss used to work for Shell. Rishi Sunak has a family fortune significantly invested in Shell. So when those share prices rise, he benefits. And it's not just him, it's his friends too. Nadeem Zahawi made £30,000 a month from an oil company. What did Rishi Sunak do? He made him chairman of the Conservative Party. Graham Brady gets taken to Wimbledon by oil companies. Uh, What does the Conservative Party do? They make him chair of their influential 1922 committee. And when Jeremy Hunt ran for uh, for the Conservative Party leadership, his campaign was bankrolled to the tune of £25,000 by an organisation described by Greenpeace as Britain's leading climate denial organisation, ensuring therefore that uh, we don't get real climate science, but instead get money uh, pushed to oil and gas companies. Now we have a situation where workers in rigs in the North Sea have balloted for strike action and been successful in doing so. So 1,500 workers going to be going on strike soon in what the Union Unite describes as a tsunami. So that's the situation we face. Workers on strike because they're not being paid properly while the rest of us pay enormous prices and that flows to oil and gas companies. And the British state's way out of it is a temporary bung, uh, a a subsidy which limits our uh, fuel bills, the, the price cap, while paying 150 billion pounds from us and our children in borrowing straight to private companies to bail them out while the British state caps prices. The capitalists benefit, the company bosses benefit, the workers in the industries face stalling pay like everyone else. And those of us who have to use heating, that's all of us, uh, see our bills rise. It's a rigged system in which the British state and its leading politicians um, uh, fight for capitalist profits and not for us to be able to heat our homes sustainably. They put profits above people and importantly, above planet too.
0: Treating the British public like a cash machine isn't the only thing BP has come under fire for recently. That's because in February the firm also said it would cut back on its targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In 2022, BP pledged to reduce emissions by between 35 and 40 percent by the end of the decade, but they've rolled back on that, reducing the target between 20 and 30 percent in the same time frame. You can't say you haven't got enough cash, guys. In response, five of the UK's largest pension funds voted to sack BP's chairman, Helg. Lund, last week. The BP reports this. The pension funds told the BBC they only found out about the change in BP's climate targets via media reports. They then approached BP to ask for a vote on the new targets, but BP refused, arguing it was not a material change to the strategy. Patrick O'Hara, Director of Responsible Investment at LGPS Central, told the BBC if you change the strategy, which is in regard to decarbonisation, you should really enter into a dialogue with those that supported you. He said he thought BP's decision was driven by short-term profit considerations rather than long-term sustainability of the company. Heaven forbid, oil companies don't do that at all, do they? Uh, Are these strategies science-based? If you can flex them based on what the oil and price gas is, we are long-term investors and we expect the company to take a long-term view. Now, despite managing the pensions of a full third of the UK workforce, it wasn't enough to carry the vote, and Lund survived. Meanwhile, research from the think tank Commonwealth found that BP has handed 10 times as much to shareholders this quarter as they spent on low-carbon investments. Here's that Commonwealth report. In Q1 2023, BP spent ten times as much on shareholder payouts, dividends, and share buybacks combined as their capital expenditure on their low carbon segment, aka decarbonisation. For which investment fell compared to the previous quarter, so it's going down. Total shareholder payouts exceed total cash capital expenditure for yet another quarter. Another 1.7, another 1.75 billion in buybacks has been scheduled for Q2 2023. This is extraordinary. And I say that a lot on the show, but this is really extraordinary. You have record profits coming from BP, and they are record profits. I think Shell and BP's profits last year were top five of all UK profits ever posted for any single company. And of course, they're in a very, very exposed industry, we're all told. Carbon cha- climate change matters so much. You would think you're profiteering from massive oil prices... Uh, The least you could do is pay for decarbonisation. Commonwealth also previously found that together BP and Shell distributed £147 billion to shareholders between 2010 and 2020. Again, you could perhaps justify all of this if it was paying for renewable infrastructure, which we will all come to depend on over the coming decades. But that's not what's happening. These are giveaways being given to the 1%. Barnaby,
1: what do we do about it? I mean, it is, as you say, just extraordinary. Um, scientists tell us that we need to reduce emissions by 45% uh, just to reach the, uh, the 2% target of increased warming set in the Paris climate agreement. Now we have BP saying they, a fossil fuel company, are only going to reduce them by 25%. Scientists say we need to pretty much eliminate most fossil fuel production, uh, certainly by 2050, um, if we're going to meet those 2%. Targets and BP are treating that need with total disregard. In fact, even their plan to reduce emissions is hollow. They want to reduce emissions largely by offsetting their emissions, that is to say by continuing to pollute and destroy the planet, and then planting some trees and telling us telling us all that that makes it better. They'll still be destroying the planet. Meanwhile, in their plans to reduce emissions, they don't include 90% of the emissions which come from burning oil and gas. That's what are called scope three emissions, which they just don't include in their plans to reduce emissions. So they're taking us all for a ride. Why on earth are they doing it? The answer is pretty simple. It's all about the cash. Oil prices go up. Companies see they can make a killing out of oil. And so their green credentials quickly fall by the wayside. When they announced this shift away from uh, uh, making any real effort to save the planet, their share price, BP's share price went up 10%. That's the pattern here. Lord Brown, former chief executive of BP, rebranded BP, he said, Beyond Petroleum. In the early 2000s then what happened the oil price shot up around 2008 and all that all those promises were forgotten the conveniently named current chief executive of bp mr looney um, he announced that uh, he was going to be serious about decarbonization when the oil price was very low in 2020 then the oil price shoots up and he changes his mind it's always the same story because a system that is predicated on profit won't ever put the planet first of its own accord. If you're an oil company boss, your job is to make money for your shareholders and they're doing really, really well at it. So they won't, of their own initiative, stop making money for shareholders and invest in saving the planet. They'll always put a a quick buck first. Chevron's chief executive told the Financial Times, the reality is fossil fuels will still run the world in 20 years time the reality, he says. Just buckle up and accept it. Well, if fossil fuels still run the world in 20 years' time, we'll be facing a world of such grave heating that droughts and famines and and flooding spreading all over the world will cause millions, literally millions, of climate refugees. That's what all the most sombre predictions state. So the choice we face is a warming planet A warming planet in which people can't live any longer in large parts of the world. And so they flee, flee to our shores. And as the planet warms, and as flooding and drought spreads, and as more and more of the world becomes unlivable, the walls will be built ever higher to keep out desperate people. That's the cycle of chaos and misery onto which capital places us. The hunt for extra profit, the need for a few corporate bosses and their political friends to buy a new yacht or a new private jet means literally burning down the planet because what will happen to millions of people in 10, 15, 20 years time, even what will happen to millions of people next week It doesn't much matter to corporate bosses who care instead about making an immediate profit. That's the system we live in. And it's not a system which is able to put the needs of climate first. You're not going to get it from private capitalists. We need a different way of running the world.
0: Important to say alongside all of this, Barnaby, is you look at, for instance, the largest company in Europe is LVMH, which is Louis Vuitton. Uh, You have other luxury brands worth hundreds of billions of pounds. You look at these guys who were owned by LVMH, Tiffany & Co., They are building the biggest luxury store in the world right now. They're redoing it in in New York. They're seeing huge profits. and, And they don't want you to know this. They don't want you to talk about this. This is the FT Weekend Supplement. It used to be called How to Spend It. Now it's called HTSI because they know that people can't afford to warm their homes. They can't afford to pay their bills. They're working overtime. They're having to work longer and longer, can't look after their kids while the people that are shareholders and the bigwigs at places like BP and Shell are up to their eyeballs in money while they're destroying the planet. And what's it for? Louis Vuitton handbags, private jets, Tiffany jewellery, and a a second home somewhere, or a third or a fourth or a fifth, because it's never enough for these people. It's greed. It is greed. There's no excuse for it. There's no excuse for it. And quite frankly, taxing them all is the least they could do. In a civilized society, they're far more coming their way. Next story. None of us are getting any younger, except maybe Owen Jones. What's what's up with that? And with birth rates falling for decades and people generally living longer, the complexion of society has changed. In 1980, the average age in the UK was 33. Today, it's almost 41. And while average life expectancy has stagnated in recent years, most people can expect to reach 81 years of age. This all means that people can and do work for longer. And according to new research, the number of people over 70 who are are still in work has almost reached half a million. That's an astonishing 61% increase in just a decade. Now, that's all very interesting, you might think, and it's concerning that the number of older workers is rocketing, despite the fact life expectancy hasn't moved for a decade, because what that means is retirement is getting shorter for many. The research was conducted by Restless, a digital platform offering advice to older workers. But one aspect of the reporting of this story was the strangest part of all. A Sky News piece appeared with this headline. Big rise in number of over 70s in the workplace with the king leading by example. A few things here. Firstly, Charles Windsor, who is 74, is younger than the last person to hold his job, Elizabeth Windsor, who was the monarch until last year when she passed away at the age of 96. Secondly, the article describes Charles as, quote, a prime example of the post-state pension age worker. But being the king isn't a job. He wasn't hired, his contract can't be terminated, and other candidates certainly weren't overlooked. He has the role he does because of who his parents are. And while that might apply to half the people who work at the Times newspaper, that's a little bit different to Colin, age 71, working part-time on the checkout at Wilco. And to be clear, Charles doesn't need a job because his personal wealth stands at around 1.8 billion pounds. That includes assets he inherited from his mother, which weren't subject to inheritance tax. After all, that's for the little people. So while I could be wrong here, I suspect he doesn't need to do much overtime to make ends meet, to keep the heating on at Buckingham Palace. And to top it off, the headline describes Charles as, quote, leading by example, as if working well into your 70s is something to be emulated. The retirement age for a man in the UK is 66. That is meant to be the aspiration, not working until you die. And finally, Charles and the likes of you and me aren't the same. If he's leading by example, how come he gets to wear £5,000 suits and drive supercars while many older people stay and work because they can't afford to pay their bills? Barnaby, this is straight-up propaganda, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, and we should take a lesson from the people of France who have a decent welfare state because whenever governments try to attack it, They get out into the streets and they defend it. Um, The lesson here is that if we want good pay and conditions for most people, we shouldn't look to the pay and conditions of Charles Windsor, except to say, why does he live a life so radically different from us? We now know lots of things about quite how radically different his life is. We know for example that he's financially secure because the corrupt charity that he runs the prince's trust takes money in brown paper bags from saudi oligarchs and promises them knighthoods in return. He uses like any mafia boss, he uses his connections to state power in order to deliver uh, a profits for him. So he promises uh, when he gets money in brown paper bags that he'll give knighthoods to people. Um, He took $1.2 million from members of the bin Laden family uh, for his his trust. And we know that he then intervenes in political decisions. We have the Black Spider memos from the early 2000s, where Charles uh, lobbied governments. Um, He's just an ignorant guy who Supports things like state funding for uh, uh, unproved homeopathy therapies. Um, but he's able to use his position of family power and privilege to lobby politicians to ensure that our taxpayer money has to go on those things that are his pet projects, uh, whether it's uh, untested health therapies or supporting uh, old fashioned architecture. Um, for his coronation, we're going to be asked to spend a 100 million pounds of taxpayer money. And in addition to that, more than 300 million pounds for a fancy refurbishment of his palaces we're being asked to shell out all that money while the state hands more and more money to Charles and his family. In 2011, it was 8 million pounds given per year by the state uh, to fund the royal family. Now it's over 86 million pounds. So we've had governments consistently act to help this family to ensure that they can live a life of enormous wealth and privilege, greater even than other royal families in other countries. Um, uh, Consistently, governments have acted to ensure that and to protect them from all scrutiny. Andrew used uh, secretive shell companies to hide money that he was making, while going overseas as a trade envoy. If anyone else goes overseas for the British state, there are some transparency requirements so that they can't uh, uh, meet a businessman in Azerbaijan and then uh, ask him to invest in their personal company. Andrew had a whole secret system set up to allow him to do that. You might ask how the kind of impunity uh, allowed him to hang out with child sex traffickers uh, and be complicit in that. Well, it's a whole culture of impunity for members of the British ruling class. If you're on universal credit, uh, you're investigated and inspected to see if you can walk across the room before you're given your benefits. Um, But if you're a member of the royal family, you have millions of pounds shoveled to you by hardworking British taxpayers in order to maintain you in a life of luxury. Why was Andrew able to have those shell companies? Because a deal made in the seventies by a labor government, by the way, allowed the royal family to hide their investments, a special deal. Um, So the British state acts to protect these people, ensure that they can hide their money, have enormous amounts of money, and then have it funded by the taxpayer. That's not the experience of most people when they age. The experience of most people when they age is struggling to work out how to keep paying their bills and being forced into real jobs in order to do that. Um, The royal family live a totally different life, protected and subsidized by the taxpayer. Um, And I think it's time we ended it. I'm a Republican too.
0: I think most people uh, at Navarro Media probably are, no surprise there. So I think we'll be talking about more over the coming days and weeks. Final story. Uh, this is, of course, related to King Charles as well. All of us talk to the television sometimes. I know I do. My wife says it's like I'm a different person when I'm watching football. And apparently I'm known to use rather colorful language. Similar things reportedly happen whenever I watch BBC Question Time. Of course, I couldn't possibly comment. But now we're actually being asked to talk to the television as part of the coronation for Charles III. The Observer reports this. Members of the public watching the coronation on television, online, and in parks and pubs will be invited to swear aloud their allegiance to the monarch in a chorus of millions of voices to be known as the homage of the people. People around the UK and abroad will be invited to say the words, I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to law. So help me God in a declaration that replaces the traditional homage of peers, Charles has talked about modernising the monarchy, and this is apparently what that looks like. After all, the homage of the peers has been a constant of coronations for centuries. At previous coronations, dukes and various members of the aristocracy were expected to pay homage to the monarch and pledge their allegiance to the sovereign, presumably so they wouldn't try and launch a coup or side with an invading foreign power. But today, such things are more likely to be a problem for a character in an HBO series than a consideration for the royals. So this has been updated by Charles to become a homage of the people talking at your TV screen to you and me. Describing this momentous occasion, a Lambeth Palace spokesperson said this, those watching and listening at home and elsewhere will be invited to make their homage by sharing in the same words, a chorus of millions of voices enabled in the first time in history to participate in the solemn and joyful moment. Solomon Joyful. That's rather a bit of a paradox there, but we'll we'll leave that to Lambeth Palace. So what will this actually look like? Well, the Archbishop of Canterbury will be leading the ceremony and he he will call upon, quote, all persons of goodwill in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and all the other realms and territories to make their homage in heart and voice to their undoubted king, defender of all. The order of service will read as thus... All who so desire in the Abbey and elsewhere say together, I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to law, so help me God. But that's not all, because it will be followed by this, the playing of a fanfare where the archbishop will proclaim, God save the king, with all asked to respond, God save King Charles, long live King Charles, may the king live forever. May the king live forever. Has this country turned into Disneyland? because I hate to disappoint you, Justin Welby, King Charles isn't going to live forever. Nobody does. We all die. After all, he's just a man, not a god, which kind of makes me think this whole thing is rather sacrilegious. But look, I'm a Catholic, so it's not really my problem. Barnaby, how do you feel about being asked to talk to your TV and asking that Mr. Charles Windsor lives
1: forever? This stuff matters because the cultures of deference that are built into British society matter. The reason they care, the reason that when Charles was about to be crowned, they went into overdrive to attack and shut down protest um, in order to make it look like the whole transition was seamless, is because they know that making people believe that we're all inferior to those born with blue blood is one of the mechanisms by which class society gets reproduced. You know, I've seen it again and again and again. Smart people from working class backgrounds who are held back by a belief that they are genuinely inferior to those idiots born with a silver spoon in their mouths. It's one of the ways that British hierarchies get sustained by telling us that we are somehow lesser than this family of uh, corrupt uh, uh, child abusing and and, and those who cover up child abusers um, uh, 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 profiteers who gained millions and millions from slavery and who now uh, respond to that by saying they're going to fund one PhD to look into the uh, slavery money that went into funding their palaces. Here's a different kind of suggestion for a different kind of country. We could take all of the money that the royals have amassed by theft, corruption, slavery and abuse over centuries. Rather than letting them sit there with those big diamonds stolen from colonies around the world, we could take all of that, give much of it back to people all over the world from whom it was stolen, and still have money to spare, to fund nurses' pay rises, to fund the schools that are falling apart, the hospitals that we need to build so people don't lie in corridors waiting for operations. We could fund all of that. And Charles could be liberated to retire, as uh, all of us want to retire and enjoy a peaceful, stable old age. Or if he needs to make some money, he could get a job in any of the booming sectors that his subjects have to get jobs in. He could find himself working in an Amazon warehouse or could deliver pizzas on Uber. I don't of these qualified to do much else he could live the life of most of us and be liberated from the endless scrutiny and obs- and observation that makes his private life into a public uh, sh- uh, charade a public circus we could liberate him we could free the royals to become human beings and not uh, objects of endless paparazzi scrutiny they could go abroad and, and and deliver pizzas elsewhere if they want to avoid scrutiny um, and the rest of us could could enjoy the wealth that they have amassed and not waste it on events like coronations. But these events aren't meaningless. They're ways of instituting deference. They're ways of telling British people, you are inferior to those who were born above you, so you should do as you're told, shut up and accept the crap they give you. That's what royalty does. That's why it matters. Even if it didn't cost a penny, it would matter because it tells us that the world is divided into those who are born superior and those who are born to serve. Those who are born to degrade and those Those who are born to be degraded. That's why some of them end up um, uh, abusing kids, because the whole culture of the institution says that only some people matter and other people don't. That some people are there to be pampered with servants uh, fulfilling their every whim, and other people are just there to be abused. That's not the kind of country I want to live in, and that's why I think we need to get rid of them to save them from their life of miserable family drama uh, and to save all of us from the culture of deference.
0: I was going to say, Barnaby, you know, obviously King Charles, or as I prefer to say, Mr. Charles Windsor, he could get a job. I mean, he, he could also have a very nice life as a private citizen. You know, be, be like your son, like Harry, get a, get a Spotify podcast. I'm sure you've got a lot to say about architecture. It could be interesting. Speaking of podcasts, of course, this show has its own podcast too. The link is in the description. Go there. Wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find us there. We're Navarra Live. Leave us a review too. We were number one for news on Spotify. I believe Alistair Campbell has taken that spot back from us again. So that wasn't long-term regime change. Guys, we are in this for the long term. We are here to take the king's proverbial crown from him. So do head there. And if you don't want Alistair Campbell as numero uno, you know what to do. Uh, Barnaby, thanks for joining me this evening. It's been a pleasure, as it always is, Aaron. It's great to see you. You too. I'm, I'm glad we had less technical issues this week. Uh, always a great guest. And thanks, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another show from 6pm from now. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to
4: navaramediacom support.